Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the Talking Football Podcast. My name's Derek Clark and every week I bring you an exclusive in-depth interview with some of the most colourful and interesting characters in the game. Don't worry if you've missed any so far, you can catch them all on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Podbean and also by visiting the website DerekClarkSport.co.uk. The reaction to last week's interview with Eric Pedersen has been nothing short of astounding. Thank you very much for downloading the episode and all the feedback you've left. It means a great deal. This week, I took a trip to my old stomping ground at New Douglas Park in Hamilton to chat to a man ingrained in the woodwork at Hamilton Ackies. It's their former secretary and now UEFA delegate and stadium inspector, as well as much-travelled groundhopper, the one and only Scott Strollers. So sit back and enjoy this week's episode of the Talking Football Podcast. Welcome everyone to another edition of the, the Talking Football Podcast. I'm delighted to say we're joined by someone that's in with the furniture at Hamilton Aki's former secretary, now UEFA delegate and stadium inspector, Scott Strollers. Scott, thanks very much for, for joining us. No problem, compliments of the season. Um, let's start off way back when you're a small child. We, did you always have a love of football? Did, did, did you want to be a footballer when you were a youngster? Um, I think I realised quite early on I was never going to be a footballer. I've soon realised <laughs> that my knees were holding my legs up and my, my ankles and my feet were sort of for walking along the pavements and not controlling balls. My, my record at keeping up to this day remains about three, uh, which is much <laughs> the amusement of the players whenever I try it out. Uh, I did qualify as a referee when I was still at school though uh, and took up refereeing because I was always obviously, a more than keen interest in football. Uh, but was an armchair fan, certainly as a kid, uh, I, I recall being at, I don't know, maybe half a dozen games in the mid-70s at Motherwell at Partick, maybe at Celtic at Rangers, Hamilton in the mid-70s, without recalling the games, I simply recall going, but it was maybe when I was 14 before I began going regularly. Were Aki's always your, your team? Yeah, they were a local team. As, as a family, we always did sort of the Saturday afternoon weekly shop in the old Re- Regent Way town centre. Yes. Uh, Safeways, the opposite <laughs> yeah. Woolworths and British Home Stores. These places all long since gone. I think Hamilton Town Centre, now Regent Way still there, though. But uh, you know, once we do the family shop, because the weekly shop in, uh, in Hamilton Town Centre, you know, but heading back to Uddingston, we'd drive past Old Douglas Park, and I would frequently get dropped off at half past two, you know, to go to the football and, you know, the pocket money, like you spend your 70 pence as a kid <laughs> going into the terracing at Old Douglas Park, and then you'd no money for the bus fare home, and it was a, maybe a 45, 50 minute walk back to Uddingston <laughs> afterwards. And as you do that as a 12, 13, 14, 15 year old, and it wasn't a problem at all. Did it's you? Part of growing up watching yeah, football. Yeah, certainly. Can you remember your sort of first game at all? Uh, the first game that I certainly got recorded in my book is an Albion Rovers St Mirren uh, League Cup tie at Clifton Hill. First Hamilton game I've got in my book uh, was the famous day when we played Hibs in a top of the table clash with uh, George Best playing for Hibs at the time. And uh, I think we would 7,000 for a, for a Saturday First Division match. And just two days later, we were home to Celtic in a League Cup tie with over 12,000. So we were over 19,000 people, you know, squeezing at the old Douglas Park inside 40 hours was tremendous. Did you have anyone grown up with that, that sort of went to the games with you then that has the same sort of passion as, as you had? Uh, not not family-wise, no, but obviously there are other people, other friends as well, Aki's fans that you got to know as well, mm. and there's many of them still coming to this day. I mean, there's not very many of us, as people know, maybe a hardcore of... 1,000 to 1,200 uh, maybe hardcore home, home-based Aggies fans 
Um, and that's why it's always been a, a very loyal following. People do know everybody else. You know, people have all travelled on the welfare bus or the supporters club bus, or you know, I, I remember getting the train to Shawfield. That was an adventure oh, yes. and things like that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> okay, it's only three or four stops in the train. You know, but I have to walk along Rutherglen Main Street with an Aki scarf on and people sort of staring at you and things like that. But uh, I remember that, and we lost a game five two at Clyde as well. When did you first sort of start working for for the club? Um, Alan Dick, who was the then secretary, Alan now works for the SPFL as a match delegate and also the Irish Football League as a delegate. Um, Alan realised that I was this sort of daft lad that came to, with two or three <laughs> friends, we came to the Monday night reserve games uh, and the reserve league West back in the, the early mid-80s was a fantastic league. Mm-hmm. Crowds at reserve games then were, I mean, three and four hundred was a normal crowd, not the 50, 60, 70. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, in theory, one man and his dog that you get at reserve yeah. games at two o'clock on a Monday afternoon now. I can recall, you know, Hamilton Mall Martin Partick, Queen's Park, Airdrie, Albion Rovers, Clyde, Dumbarton, uh, and the Reserve League West, early mid-80s. And I say 300, 354, 450, was a perfectly normal crowd on a Monday night. And me and two or three friends would sort of pester Alan Dick for the, you know, for the teams just from a notebook and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And Alan quickly realised that he was someone that was keen, eager, yeah. interested. And in 1983, uh, Alan got me involved in, you know, contributing towards the, the match programme and, and helping out with the programme and that kind of thing. And that then developed into dealing with all the admin and the match arrangements for the reserve team and the under-18s, for example. You know, into the mid-80s, then it helped, you know, working in the ticket office on a match day and, you know, dealing with the media and the complimentary tickets and the media tickets. Uh, and Saturday home games, it's really just developed from there throughout the, the early 80s. Yeah, it must have been a dream for you then, working for the club that you obviously yeah, supported. Yeah, it, it was good fun because you were involved, you were seeing things behind the scenes. I mean, uh, you can back to players from that era, um, you know, the lads that were starting out themselves then, people like Paul McDonald, Alan Ferguson, Jim Weir, you know, that I'm still in touch with more or less every other week now, you know, 33, 34 years later. Um, uh, and Alan Ferguson, you know, certainly in the last 25, 30 years, a player that's made most appearances for the club. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul still see regularly, because Paul's head of youth at Kilmarnock now, uh, and still see Paul when we play them or under 18s, whatever. Uh, in fact, Paul's son was exchanging birthday wishes with him on Facebook yesterday. Mm-hmm. The, the old Douglas Park, then, which are your memories of, of that? It was just a wonderful old football ground. Yeah. I mean, I can go back to the pre segregation days at Old Douglas Park. We actually were talking a couple of weeks ago about um, the days pre Twitter and pre you know modern technology, the half time scores in the, the <laughs> 70s and 80s. It was just, a, it was just a, a wooden scoreboard in the corner of the ground and it had letters on it, you know, from A to Z and a space for someone to go and hand manually slot in, you know, 0 1, 0 0. <laughs> But to know what A meant, you had to go and buy the match programme. Mm. And A told you it was Clyde v Queen's Park, B was oh. Albion Rovers v Morton, you know, C was Celtic v Partick, and so on. <laughs> so all you saw was A 0-0, B 1-1, C 2-1. And, and if you wanted to know what the score was, you had to go and buy a programme. Mm. And even when the announcer read out the scores over the, the tannoy, if somebody read out A 0-0, B 1-0. <laughs> so no teams were actually read out here. Because all you'll bring up Twitter, bring up your phone, yeah. bring up uh, any kind of app in your phone, and you know what the scores are and running instantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and football's changed massively since then but see, I can recall uh, the old terracing at Douglas Park with the club shop underneath the covered enclosure uh, we get new floodlights built in the mid-80s too which we opened against Icelandic team mm-hmm. um, the famous story was when we were actually re- putting in the new floodlights um, when we had the famous Scottish Cup tie against Rangers which we won at Ibrox mm-hmm. in soon as his first season in charge um, the chairman Jan Stepek had told the manager John Lambie you know, 
we, we, mm. we can't host a replay because we've got no floodlights. You know, we can't play a midweek replay. You'll just have to go and win it today. You know, <laughs> true story. <laughs> you mentioned there John Lambie. What, what was he like to, to, to work alongside? Incredible man. Uh, died 18 months ago, unfortunately. Yeah. And his funeral was one of the most incredible funerals I've ever been at as well. I actually met last week the, the minister that conducted it. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, John, and you've seen him portrayed in, in media and in TV documentaries. You know, he was... Uh, he was your old style manager, you know, with the camel coat, the cigar, and ev- every word was usable in a team talk or anywhere else. And he did indeed use them. His vocabulary might have been limited, but he certainly was more than more than extensively used. But John was uh, an old fashioned. Um, tracksuit manager yeah. on the training ground um, you don't see managers puffing in cigars and camel coats <laughs> now those days have gone but it wasn't remotely abnormal then and I can recall thinking you know John's going to have a heart attack mm. he was just off the scale mm. but in a wonderful way a heart of gold as well but he was earthy, he was Scottish, uh, he knew his roots, he knew Central Scotland, he knew football, he was never a superb player, he was your bog-standard journeyman, workman player, and, um, I mean, he didn't become manager here till I think he was 43, 44 years old, I mean, that now you're as good as retired, yeah. you know, nowadays. Um, but, I mean, John Lambie had come in, he'd, he'd been a long-serving coach at Hibernian, you know, second-team coach, as it was in those days, and even second coach to the second team <laughs> would, would, have been a, would have been a normal position without being unkind uh, to mm-hmm. John um, but you get the chance to come here Bertie Ault had taken over as uh, manager and it wasn't working out at all That the results were really poor over the course of that season and it, it was not enjoyable to watch at all 83-84 season and um, Bertie got given the heave in uh, the January and John took over mm-hmm. and it was his first game was a Scottish Cup tie at home to Alloa and it was postponed a couple of times they ended up taking place on a Thursday night bizarrely mm-hmm. and uh, it was famous because Jock Wallace the then Rangers manager was also at the game and signed Stuart Monroe the Alloa left back yes. straight after the match Another character uh, in the more spectator form, Fergie. But your run-ins with, with, with that sort of individual. Fergie was incredible. I actually passed a picture of him at the top corner the other week there, and it's 10 years ago, 11 years ago in January uh, that he died, actually, January 2009. Uh, latterly, he was a very poor soul. He'd not been at a game at all in the previous six, seven years of his life. He'd been, I think, confined to a home in uh, Lark Hall. But, I mean, he's, he was a very famous fan to anybody that followed Scottish football in the 70s, 80s. Uh, and 90s, the old days of the terraces, I mean, you could walk round terraces, be it at Clydebank, Morton, or Broth, Hamilton, whatever. And he's bet noir, the player that he loved to hurl abuse at was the long serving uh, Clydebank goalkeeper, Jim Gallagher. Mm-hmm. And I never see Jim now, he always I.O. asks and things like that. And uh, Fergie just hollered abuse. And, and going back to John Lambie, too, when we had when Fergie's, his, his name wasn't Fergie, it was Ian Russell, his mm-hmm. name. When we had his funeral in uh, January 2009, he was buried just pretty close to here, actually, in the West Cemetery in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. John Lambie came to his funeral, and when it came to the park, you know, to throwing some earth into the, 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 the layer and everything else, John came in and he threw into the, 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 the layer on top of the coffin uh, a programme, and it was a programme that had a picture of, uh, you know, John Lambie and Fergie sort of shaking hands before a game and that kind of thing and uh, the former referee Brian McGinley long serve international referee Brian McGinley came to his funeral too I said nice to see you here Brian what brings you here he said just to make sure he's dead (laughs) 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 uh, you you can see the humour in the remark but uh, the humour in the remark but Fergie 
he would wave us off when the team bus would leave Douglas Park. He would wave cheerio to you, and you'd arrive at Arbroath two hours later, and there he was waving to welcome <laughs> you in. And you suddenly, you know, he was the forerunner of Doctor Who. He had his own time travel, you know, Christopher Lloyd and all the rest of it. I don't, we don't know how he did it, mm-hmm. but the number of times over the years that we'd wave cheerio to Fergie, and then there he was, you know, at the front door to hurl abuse at you. Uh, and another story with Fergie and John Lambie, John Lambie and the very early and he switched backwards and forwards between Hamilton and Partick you know when Hamilton became manager at Partick quit six months came back to Hamilton and so on on his second spell as second or third spell as Partick manager his first game was against us and uh, at that time the manager's office at Fur Hill was on, on the main Fur Hill road itself mm-hmm. so Fergie was standing outside the front door at Fur Hill hurling abuse you know, through this closed window Lambie or this, Lambie or that you know, <laughs> Judas and 30 pieces of silver and many many words were uttered and ended up John opened up his window and you know, the clouds of cigar smoke came out into Fur Hill Road first of all so John and Fergie exchanged fraternal greetings and uh, John then duly passed down a complimentary mm-hmm. ticket to Fergie to end the game, thanks John, brilliant. Take back everything I said about you, blah, blah, blah. You're still this, you're still that, and all the rest of it. Dearly me. Um, touching on Douglas Park, how sad was it to see it go, and how, how hard was it the, the Fur Hill years, if you like, in the home? Um, in, in terms of seeing Douglas Park go, unfortunately, we're in a situation where it had to go. Yeah. Um, there'd been two or three football disasters and safety legislation of the very late 1980s, and, and it killed old old football grounds. I mean, there's very few that still survive, for the most part, untouched. Air United or both, perhaps Morton, remain untouched in, in Scottish football, and not really having sort of modernised like the others. And that's why these grounds, Beacon City, forfeit to an extent too, are much liked by supporters at away yeah. games because it's, it's it is an away day. It's an old-fashioned football ground. You can stand there at terracing with your pie and bovel mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. You're not sort of um, having to be shepherded to a seat and sit down and shut up and all the rest yeah. of it. Football has changed, certainly. Douglas Park was in a situation where the main stand laterally became unusable. It was an old-fashioned wooden stand. It was the best part of 80 years old, and the cost of modernising would have been too prohibitive given the crowds we had then. But the, the land was pretty close to a railway station, pretty close to a town centre. The land had a value, uh, albeit it was surrounded by various industrial units and houses and everything else. And the club's problem was at that time that Douglas Park in itself wasn't a big enough site to sell onto a Sainsbury's yeah. that we can see now. Yeah. Uh, and it required a lot more pieces to, to make it a big enough jigsaw to sell on. So in many ways, because Douglas Park had just allowed to become run down to use that phrase not maybe not dilapidated but certainly run down its last three or four seasons the club simply couldn't continue there it was always a chance that the club had to move because the, the cost of staying at Douglas Park mm-hmm. say laterally we were left to using 500 seats in uh, you know, the newer of the two stands that we had the main stand itself was shut laterally mm-hmm. because it certainly didn't comply with any of the new legislation following, for example, the Bradford fire, following yeah, yeah, the disaster yeah. at Hillsborough. Uh, and they were very, very dominant. If you're a football fan, that you, you still hear about them now in the news, obviously. But for someone you know, that lived through that particular era of, of football and one of my uni exams or dissertations was on um, you know the postscripts to both Bradford and Hillsborough as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, a, it was a, a fairly traumatic time in football, but it was that that made football, certainly British football, into the, 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 the modern stadiums uh, that we have now. And Ernie Walker, the former SFA secretary, who for 20-odd years was UEFA Stadium Committee chairman, mm-hmm. Ernie has said you know, that pound for pound the best stadiums in Europe were all in Britain because Britain, unfortunately, did suffer uh, two or three disasters and Britain did have to um, rebuild, modernise, change. Um, the Thatcher government in, in many ways contributed to that. 
uh, with some of the social policies and changes of the 80s too. And it was a whole host of things, both society and football, um, that led to old grounds like Douglas Park simply being not yeah. not akin to modern football at all. And you've now got, you know, as you can see here, you know, 6,000 covered seats, every seat unobstructed, people have got a good view. Mm -hmm. uh, and football just really changed in the, the 80s, 90s because of that. Yeah. In terms of uh, players, notable players that, that you've sort of encountered here at, at Aki's, is there any sort of players that, that stand out at all? Countless over the years, to be yeah. fair. I mean, uh, in 37 years here, an average of, say, 20, 25 players a season. I don't know how many players that is. It must be, <laughs> I don't know, 1,000, 50 or 2,000 players countless and yeah. I have to say many of them are still good friends to this day we've still got a WhatsApp group believe it or not for the under 18 team from 2001 you know and that's oh. now 18, 19 years further on and that WhatsApp group you know, is, 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 is active now and I've conversation with two of the guys on it today already mm -hmm. uh, and that's just uh, happy memories you know for an under 18 team and that particular under 18 team uh, in 2001 were in the third division that season yet the under 18s got to the final of the reserve league cup and the semi-final of the Scottish Youth Cup mm -hmm. which was fantastic now of the players in that team only maybe two or three actually went on to play league football mm -hmm. and not any great career in it either but as, a, as, as an under 18 team as a unit um, in terms of team spirit it's, it's been it's unmatched I would say in 30 odd years mm -hmm. a couple of seasons ago came really really close um, but in terms of first team players we've already mentioned people like Alan Ferguson Paul McDonald, Jim Weir J uh, Jim Sherry and uh, many yes. others um, one, one of my favourite players uh, one of, I think my first hero would be Neil Howey very good midfielder played alongside Bobby Graham, Mick McManus etc mm -hmm. uh, the very early 1980s um, Neil Howe was a great player Billy Reid uh, when Billy Reid was here as a player too was, was a very good player of mine uh, Stevie Clark the late 1980s especially and his son was here as a coach in the youth academy up until about a year or so ago as well um, Jim Sherry I've mentioned too and all these players are sort of your battling yeah, ankle yeah, yeah, biting yeah. central yeah, midfield yeah, yeah, type yeah. players so maybe it's maybe it's my inner persona saying of what kind of a player <laughs> I might have been had I ever played you know I'd have been at biting someone's ankle like Darian McKinnon or Scott Martin yeah, yeah, or yeah. you know from, 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 from the current man. squad young Regan Mimno and the, the under yeah. 19s as well um, I've always liked that sort of gritty you know around your ankle yeah. centre midfield player yeah. and uh, just, maybe it's just my style of play you know yeah we kind of fancy goal scorers and 30 goals a season Peter Duffield from the mid-90s mid yes. too uh, 39 goals across two seasons which made him fantastic Richard Offiong uh, and then the, the late 2000s as well uh, had, had a couple of fantastic seasons with us too just banging in goals um, I would say too many players to name any yeah. personal favourites over the years um, but I mean I've made hundreds of friends for life certainly yeah. In terms of games I mean there's obviously notable ones against Old Firm uh, the Hibs playoff and what have you yeah. is there anything that, that stand out for you? Loads um, over the years crikey I can recall in the, uh, this day we made at New Gloggers Park when we went on to be runners up in the second division in 2004 uh, classic 6-1 against Morton here I can recall 85-86 when we won the first division for the first time at Old Douglas Park uh, beating Dumbarton 6-1 in November as well and that was a fantastic score at the time too um, a 5-4 win away at Alloa as well uh, I can recall a 4-3 win at Breaker in the way to winning Division 3 the funny story behind that is we'd played Breaker and City on the Saturday and we had a Tuesday night game away at Elgin so in, in those days you went for a pre-match meal at various places because roads maybe weren't as easy as they are now mm -hmm. I mean we, we were pre-match meals at Ayr at Medibank Thistle at Wraith Rovers I mean you wouldn't, you wouldn't dream of that nowadays you wouldn't, you wouldn't have a budget for it nowadays you're either in the Premier but we'd been away at uh, 
Breaker in the Saturday, they're taking the players pre-match meal order, grilled fish, grilled chicken. Jim Sherry had famously ordered Weetabix. He was quite content with Weetabix for his 12 o'clock Saturday lunchtime. So three or four days later, rather than go through all the players and take their their um, order again for the, for the midweek match at Breaker, I suddenly took with the order for Saturday lunchtime at Elgin and reproduced it to the hotel up in Forfar we went to before Breaker. So we're sitting down getting served at the hotel at Forfar and uh, Jim Sherry belts out, you know, Waldo, what have you ordered for me? I don't recall giving him order. I said, well, I'll just put through the same order that I ordered for uh, for, uh, Bre- uh, for Elgin at the weekend. It's like, that was Saturday morning breakfast. I'm not wanting Weetabix for my dinner. <laughs> you, know, but you learn more one of these daft things over the years that sticks in my mind. Uh, Jim Sherry, good friend and a good player as well. Mm. Um, but, I mean, games, say that was a, a very good 4-3 win at Brecon that day as well. The, the two games that we won promotion, won the league in the Division 3 season, both at Montrose, mm. it was utterly bizarre with the combination of fixture scheduling postponements. We were away at Montrose on the Tuesday and Saturday in the final week of the season mm-hmm. uh, and won them both um, to win the league we've mentioned too the Rangers Scottish Cup tie Rangers mm-hmm. League win a couple of seasons ago as well the, the win at Celtic the win at Celtic mm-hmm. that we had in October 2014 when Alec Crawford scored 1-0 mm-hmm. I mean that game came in the middle of a run I have to say the best three results uh, best three league results in the club's post-war history bar none mm-hmm. I mean we had successive league matches where we beat Motherwell 4-0, beat Celtic 1-0 and beat Aberdeen here 3-0 on a Friday night and those were Scotland's top three teams at that time, those were Scotland's three teams in Europe, yeah. you know, that season that July-August and to beat them you know, Motherwell, Celtic and Aberdeen 4-0 1-0, 3-0, more than convincingly more than destroyed them uh, was fantastic and those three successive results, you know, 8-0, clean three clean sheets, everything without any shadow of a doubt is the club's best three consecutive league results mm-hmm. in 80-90 years easily and the funny the wee funny follow up story to those three results was I found myself a week later uh, in my UEFA capacity at Galatasaray against Borussia Dortmund mm-hmm. sitting on an island in the middle of the Bosphorus with the directors of the two clubs having a lunch on the day of the game and the president of Borussia Dortmund said to me Tell me, Mr. Delegate from Scotland, who is this new team in Scotland we're hearing about that are doing really well? FC Hamilton. They won at Celtic last week. What do you know about them? I said, well, what do you want to know? You know, of all the people in Turkey, you know, had a million population, you just you picked on me in the middle of a wee island to say, what do you know about Hamilton Ackies? You know, you've maybe come to the right man. But it was just utterly bizarre, very surreal. Yeah. You know, the, the club's three best results in our history. And I'm getting asked a week later by the president of Borussia Dortmund in the middle of Istanbul, what do you know about FC really? Hamilton? We've not heard of this team before. <laughs> Who are they? Are they any good? Have they got any players? You know, what can we do? Uh, but that's, that, that's, that's the way football goes. Touching on that season, do you often think what might have been if, if Alex um, was still here that Norwich never never came and took him away? It's, it's intriguing to, uh, to, to think that way. Um, but the, t- the players essentially never changed apart from Tony Ondrew yeah. leaving because he followed uh, Alec down to, yeah. to Norwich at the end of that month. It's difficult to say because football's football. But it is what it is. It, it runs in a conveyor belt. There's peaks and troughs. Yeah. And we had massive peaks uh, that season. And we had and we're, we're, we're a huge big trough thereafter because Kanzo really struggled to, you know, to get a win mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in his, his next wee, wee batch of games in charge. And it was a, in the end it was a fantastic drop at Dens Park in which he scored the header fairly late on mm-hmm. that gave us a vital point at a vital time which actually put us ahead at that moment uh, and Dundee equalised you know, before before full time it's difficult to say that because whatever happens football happens as I said we, we can't change things once they do happen yeah. uh, but I mean Alec certainly left when the, the club were firing and got great, great guns 
Um, and we'd say with one real exception, Tony Andrew leaving the squad didn't change. We just hit a big downturn in form, and that's just part of football. Yeah, is it, is it good to see guys, former Aki's sort of players, managers going? And I mean, Alex doing really well down, yeah. down south now, isn't he? So it's good to see them. Of course it is. Well, I mean, uh, remember when Ronnie McDonald took over the club in 2003? Uh, you know, I'd asked one of the directors, you know, various things. I mean, I, I knew Ronnie through both Maryhill and Clyde anyway, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, why Hamilton, basically, and one of the directors said, well, Ronnie wants to watch Match of the Day in ten years' time and say, he's yeah. one of mine, he's one of mine, I had him in the academy, right. he played in their first team 50 times, and so on, mm-hmm. and it didn't take ten years, it just took six years. Within six years, mm-hmm. he, he, he had three players that he could watch in Match of the Day, uh, which was absolutely fantastic, uh, and it was wonderful to see. We'd, we'd done it before we'd sold two players to Southampton back in the mid-1990s Paul McDonnell and Colin Cram we were actually I think maybe the first and only Scottish team to have twice sold two players to a Premiership club you know, in the same week mm-hmm. we sold two players to Southampton in 93 uh, to the Premiership and then in July 2009 we sold Easton and McCarthy in the mm-hmm. same week you know, to Burnley and Wigan so for a club our size to you know, twice in 15, 16, twice in under 20 seasons certainly you know, sell players successfully to Premiership in, in the same week you know, it was, it was yeah. a lot going um, I mean, McCarthy, MacArthur, I still keep in touch with. Every time MacArthur scores a goal on, on match of the day, he knows fine well he's going to be a text. Brilliant, well done. It's just what we do. Whenever yeah. he, so it's whenever he scores a goal. So sometimes the text maybe not as frequent as they used to be. Uh, young James McCarthy became a, a father recently too, and mm-hmm. measuring him for that and what have you too. But no, they're, they're both two, those two in particular, two very good boys, very much know their roots. Yeah. Um, I can recall when James MacArthur first came into the Hamilton Aki's first team uh, when we were playing in the Championship, there was two or three games in a row where Bill and he'd actually had to sub MacArthur at half past four because MacArthur was working at McDonald's in Parkhead Cross no at six o'clock on a Saturday no night. <laughs> Depending where we were playing at Morton or if it was parting, it wasn't too bad. If we were at home, you know, we, we, to make sure he could get... You know, literally, he was working at McDonald's at six o'clock at Parkhead Cross on a Saturday night and that was what he was like. You know, and that's only... I'm talking about 2004, 2005. Yeah, not it's not all that long ago no. either. You know, within nine, ten years, he's played for yeah. Scotland. But we were having to sort of let him off after 65 Aye. minutes to go and get showered <laughs> and changed to get him cooking the chips and the burgers. But that's a true story. That's mental. Yeah, Absolutely true mental. Story. Um, I was going to ask the UEFA role, how did all that move come about? It came about um, eight years ago. UEFA write to the various associations throughout uh, Europe every couple of years. UEFA require people to oversee games for them. And the role of a UEFA match delegate is to oversee essentially all the safety and security in the match organisation, uh, ensure the two teams adhere to the competition rules and ensure they adhere to the kit regulations. It's to oversee things like doping control. It's to be very alert to watch out for and listen out for things like racist banners, racist slogans, which are uh, mostly fairly prominent uh, yeah. in, in recent years too. So the SFA, the then vice president of the SFA, Alan McRae, had said to me, because he had just started himself a year or two earlier, and said to me, if this ever comes up, you should go for it. He said it's you to a T. You know, it's travelling, it's football, it's all the things that you love, it's match organisation. And the SFA had contacted me and, and about it, and I, I hummed and hawed over it and, and didn't really submit an application. And then with half an hour before applications closed, I got a phone call saying, we've not received your application yet. I thought, oh. right, okay. So uh, <laughs> so I sent it in and I got an email saying, thanks, you know, you're, on, you're going to UEFA for a training course. So I went to UEFA for a training course 
complete eye-opener for me because I had no involvement at all at that side of it. I'd been head of delegation many times with the Scotland youth teams yeah. when they played abroad with the 17s, 19s, women's 16s, that kind of thing, futsal squad. Mm. These are absolutely fantastic. It's a huge learning curve as well. So I'd seen it maybe from the other side of the desk, having to attend a year for meeting the delegates, explaining rules and regulations and all sorts of things to you. And it was nice to see that. Mm. And being a Scotland fan, I loved that side of it anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, I, went, I think I must have seen, in terms of Scotland away games, it must be well over 150. Wow. Certainly not as many in recent years because I've been I've been elsewhere. Yeah. But the UEFA then brought me into a different level of football, and w- within about eight or nine months, UEFA had sent me along to FIFA, to FIFA's list to do World yeah. Cup ties, Olympic Games, match of FIFA two, and a further six eight months from that, UEFA had been out and seen a couple of seen me in action at a couple of games and how I did things and how I organised things, and from that they made me a stadium inspector, which was fantastic. Um, there only are fifteen stadium inspectors to cover the whole of Europe, for example. Yeah. Um, and it's people really that have got the match organisation, the match knowledge I mean in, in, in the role that I've had at Hamilton which has been a wonderful upbringing, it's a small club but it, you've really been a jack of all trades yeah. on, you know, certainly in the, the 80s and 90s, maybe early 2000s it's much changed now but I mean you were looking after the media, you're looking after the VIPs, you're looking after the under 18 team you're looking after the fans, you're looking after all those stakeholders that have got an interest in the actual yeah. game, so when it comes to dealing with that at UEFA match I know what the requirements of the head coach are of the media, you know, of the VIPs, of the club president, of the TV gantry workers, you know, I, I know what they all need to do, where they need to be, so I can soon spot something that's out of place, or soon provide a word of advice, you know, as, as the case may be, and uh, and it's developed from that. There's approximately 2,300 UEFA matches a season, mm-hmm. I think, you know, from 17s and 19s up to Champions League and Euro qualifiers and Nations League, um, and everyone has got a match delegate. There's roughly 300 match delegates. Mm-hmm. I do 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 games a season. I also mentor and coach a lot of the new delegates, and that takes up a lot, a lot of my time too. I've got um, six people to look after. You are in Europe at the moment. Uh, I've done maybe over 20 people that I've mentored and coached over the last three or four seasons, and that's setting them off you know, on the AFA pathway in terms of mm-hmm. how to you know, oversee match organisation, how to be aware of the competition rules, regulations, uh, and the golden rule is always expect the unexpected. You simply haven't a clue um, what's going to come next, and it's the attention to detail. UEFA at its highest levels of Champions League and everybody loves to watch that on TV yeah. you know, at 8 o'clock on a Tuesday or a Wednesday night the Champions League anthem comes on here's the back of your neck you know, we've all been there and watched that and it's a fantastic competition but for you to watch that in your living room on a TV and, and, and watch you know, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, Tottenham, whoever mm-hmm. uh, it's fantastic but it's the attention to detail uh, I did a Champions League match a couple of weeks ago um, over in uh, Borussia Dortmund against Slavia Prague mm-hmm. and I basically got 20 people with me and Team UEFA to make sure that game takes place properly and that everybody watching at home has got a great show to watch. Uh, And I've got to make sure that we all work together, whether it's sponsorship, advertising, the LED board, the floodlighting, the groundsman, the emergency backup generator, (laughs) the two teams' kit, the goalie gloves. It's everything involved, the medical, the ambulance. It's everything involved in making sure this game will take place and and there shouldn't be any hiccups. You get hiccups, though, and all sorts of small wee things here and there. Um... You know, and it's just a matter of dealing with it and solving it and make sure the game takes place. Are there any grounds abroad that you, you like going to? Any sort of favourite ones? Um, I've, been at the, I've been at the old Juventus once, I've been at the new Juventus oh, twice. Um, the, the new Juventus is probably one of the best grounds in Europe right now. And it's not just the ground that makes it, it's the club itself. The club itself are very, very classy. Small things that they do, even in terms of um, the referees arrive. Whenever the referees arrive at a game, any game, you know, they get out of their car, they've got a kit bag here, flag things lugged over their shoulder, you know, walking into the game. At 
Juventus. They've got six ball boys that meet the referee's car when it arrives. Away. And the six ball boys carry in the referee's trunk, <laughs> the referee's bag, the flags, you know, their, their, their water bottles, all sorts of things. So the referees can just naturally walk in in a tracksuit or their suit, perfectly relaxed. They don't have, you know, two kit bags Aye. hanging over their shoulders or anything else. And then it's down two flights of stairs. We bit awkward. And I thought, how nice is that? How simple yeah. is that? Is the right. first thing. How simple is that? It's so simple and it's so classy. You know, you've got a hundred yard walk from where the car's parked down two flights of stairs, round a corner, up a corner. And I thought, why should the referee you know, do all that? Yeah. And why, why does nobody else do that if that's the case? Yeah. So is, is, is it sort of is it a last minute thing? They just tell you we need you to go here or there, or is it sort of all planned? For, for the most part, no. You know, three to six weeks in advance when you're going to be away and then one to three weeks where it is you're actually going Mm -hmm. Um, obviously in in July-August in the qualification rounds the game's every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday you sometimes don't know till the Friday morning when you're going on the Monday or Tuesday you know just the the very nature between first legs and second legs and everything else Uh, but for the most part though you tend to know when you're away but you might not know the actual game one to three weeks but yeah there have been some times that you do get some last people can call off take ill hospital appointments all sorts of things I was lying in my bed at five past eight on a Wednesday morning and the phone went you know, plus four one at Switzerland. Um, how soon can you get to Newcastle? And uh, Newcastle will play Ganji Makachkala in the uh, oh, yeah. Europa League round of sixteen uh, the following night, the Thursday. And it was the middle of March, and it was a really snowy period five six years ago. The delegate was coming from France, and they were bringing him out a day early, an extra day early, because yeah. of the uh, the snow and the weather in France and Northern Europe. And he'd missed two flights on the Friday, and apparently he was still stuck in his car, you know, in a snowdrift somewhere okay. south of Paris Airport, and he wasn't going to make it. He said, you know, I've now spent 24 hours in my car in the snow. That's I'm not going to get there. Yeah. So if I simply phoned the nearest neutral available delegate, and <laughs> um, so they said, yeah, I can get to Newcastle. I said, it's two and a half hours per car. And, you know, I'll go out to my office, I'll print off my documents, and I'll be there at two o'clock. Mm-hmm. And I can hear the guy tapping away at the end of the phone. He said, we'll get you a flight. I said, no, you can't fly from Glasgow to Newcastle. <laughs> You can via London. I said, no, no. <laughs> you can via London, but I said, no, I'm not. You know, I'll, I'll drive to Newcastle. Mm-hmm. So that was your know, five past eight on a Wednesday morning. How soon can you get to Newcastle? Yeah. Uh, two years ago, I was up watching a reserve game in Forth for eight o'clock on a Tuesday night in December. And the phone goes, you know, can you get to Villarreal first thing tomorrow morning? <laughs> Aye, no problem. You know, as you do. But that, that's, I, I deliberately make myself now flexible and available. Yeah. Uh, and if they phone, then I go. I do a lot of stadium inspections, uh, and they can come, you know, literally one or two days' notice. Well, sometimes you can know a couple of months in advance. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you might only know one or two days in advance, depending on other people that have to go as well. Yeah. Once somebody else's jigsaw fits into place between some of the other UEFA staff, particularly the ones that deal with um, the actual venue, um, the branding, the sponsorship, and the TV and media side of it. Once they got all them in place, first of all, then it's finding an available inspector. Yeah. You know, and say there's 15 inspectors. Uh, we've also all got different calendars, different diaries. And if I'm available, then you know, then away I go. It's good from that point of view. Yeah, in terms of games, I mean, you mentioned the, your book and what have you. If you, how many games are we talking here that you've been? Because you're obviously at a game all, all the time. Yeah, I, my seven, seven my, my seven thousandth game was <laughs> earlier on this season. Uh, I knew that I was getting close, so my sixty eighth game of this season was seven thousand. And I think after the Motherwell Hamilton game yesterday, that was one six six, which makes me therefore in seven thousand and ninety eight matches. Wow. That's incredible. It's fantastic, though. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a great, I'm not an armchair football fan now. 
uh, partly again that in now is modern media and social media. I don't believe in sitting down to watch a game live on the TV because if anything happens in it, I can see it in my phone within five minutes yeah. anyway, or I'll get it in you know Sky Sports News or BBC News yeah, Twenty Four yeah, yeah. at night, that kind of thing. So it's almost impossible to miss out. Certainly at a big game, and even if you drop down the leagues to League Two to Albion Rovers and Aaron to the Juniors to Pollock and Auchan Lake, you're going to get it on YouTube or somebody's phone or. There was a famous match at the weekend there. Peters Hill and Renfrew was postponed in the juniors for an on-field Rammy. And that was all <laughs> yeah, you were, that, that. That, that, that was Peters Hill's tweet. Match abandoned on-field Rammy. But within minutes, two or three people have uploaded video footage of this on-field yeah. Rammy onto, you know, onto Twitter or onto Instagram. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you can't miss anything in football yeah. nowadays. You might think, oh, it's at Peters Hill, it's at Renfrew, it's at Craig Mark, it's at Dorai. Nobody will hear of it. Yeah. Gone are the days of any ground being a backwater. Yeah. Every ground now has got somebody with a smartphone or there's an analyst or there's a YouTube camera or a, whatever it happens to be. You can see all sorts of things now. So I take the view, if it's an amateur game on five minutes away, I'll go and watch it. Yeah. Um, if it's you know, if it's Albion Rovers reserves at home, fine. If it's whatever it happens to be, yeah. I'll just go and watch a game of football. It's, What's the point of sitting in your house looking at the telly? A good point. Is, is there any grounds that you, you'd love to go to but you've yet to tick off the list? Um, there's always new and interesting grounds. I've never been at a match in Orkney or Shetlands, for example, you know, in Scotland. I've always liked to go and do that. Isle of Man, I wouldn't mind going to do a game there. Jersey or Guernsey. You know, parts of the British Isles quite yeah. close that, you know, that are reachable and maybe do a game there. Um, within Europe I've seen games in almost all the countries between watching Scotland and holidays and with UEFA mm-hmm. um, there's only four countries I've still got to visit and only six I've still got to see football in but I'd love to go somewhere like you know Uruguay and Argentina Brazil yeah, yeah, yeah. and just you know, to experience what it's like down there I'd love to do that sometime Yeah. and talking about Aki's this season I mean it's fantastic they've been in the, the top flight for, for so, so long isn't it but how, how do you see them getting on this year? Um, we're, we're the great survivors we yeah. are written off every single year I mean I think over the last three seasons the number of Saturdays that Hamilton have been in the bottom two is still in single figures mm-hmm. you know something like seven or eight Saturdays mm-hmm. you know if you're, or weekends by the way the fixtures are now seven or eight weekends that we've only been in the bottom two yet we're everyone's favourites to go down um, every year the club battles yeah. it's a small club and everybody has to you know to pull together um, and that's just the way it works um, there's no reason why we won't escape to use that phrase again this year the nerves and uh, the stomach upset and the biting of the nails that comes uh, <laughs> with you know, permanently being in that 10th, 11th position isn't nice but the club is certainly used to it yes. and uh, with the, the match against Hearts um, last week um, people were saying well Hamilton are used to battling Hearts aren't you know, so a battle is in Hamilton's favour um, and you know we're, we're going into the the new year five points clear of Hearts. Mm-hmm. And from Hamilton's point of view, you know for a Hamilton or a Ross County or a Livingston to survive and stay in the in the Premiership means that a bigger team or an establishment team has it's to not there. be there yeah. basically. And just now, of course, you've got the two Dundee teams in the Championship. Yeah. Three or four seasons ago, you'd Hearts, Hibs, and Rangers in the Championship. <laughs> That's bizarre. And you know for Hamilton, Ross County, Inverness, all to be in the league above yeah. them. 20 years ago, nobody would have said that full yeah. stop. I mean, Ross County and Vanessa only came into the league in 94. <coughs> and here we are now, you know, they're, they're regularly competing. Yeah. You know, top flight, and that's immense credit to them. But see, teams like Hamilton, Ross County, Inverness, Livy aren't your big established premiership teams, and all clubs would admit to that. But 
fully deserving to be there. Mm-hmm. Hamilton frequently getting social media, and you don't have any fans. There was 420 Aki's fans at Fur Park yesterday. I mean, I think uh, somebody said on Twitter, you know, the number of Aki's fans can fit into a moderate-sized living room. Well, unless your living room's Buckingham Palace, <laughs> you know, you ain't going to fit 420 fans in there, but no, those 420 fans are there for a reason. The of course they are. Yeah. Easy targets. And, and love it. As you mentioned at the start of the interview there, you know, walking through Volga Main Street with an Aki scarf on, you know, when I'm 15 years old, and you're an easy target doing that. But, I mean, it's... You support your teams, that's what you do. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether there's 20 fans, 400 fans, or 20,000 fans. You're there to support your team, and, and, and that's what you do, and that's just part of football. It certainly is. Scott Strollers, that'll do us there. Thanks very much for, no for joining us. Thank you very much. Well, that was episode 26 of the Talking Football podcast with Scott Struthers. I really hope you enjoyed it. Thanks very much again once more for listening. Remember, you can catch any episode you've missed on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Podbean and at DerekClarkSport.co.uk. We're also on Twitter at Talking underscore Football and Facebook as well. I hope you can join me again next week for another top interview. But until then, bye for now.